Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what is geometry, and what kinds of geometric spaces can we imagine? What would giant triangles look like on the surface of the Earth? Why are some mathematicians incapable of differentiating between mugs and donuts? And where do symmetries crop up in the mathematical and real world? How do you create mathematically complex transformations every time you tie your shoelaces? <laughs> Questions like these to be answered on today's episode, along with many, 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 many more. So sit down, buckle up, let's go. Sam Fisher is a first-year PhD student in mathematics at the University of Oxford. His research is in the area of geometric group theory, a field that aims to study algebraic objects known as groups, using tools coming from geometry and topology, also known as rubber sheet geometry. Broadly speaking, groups encode the symmetry of many types of objects, ranging from very concrete to highly abstract. Before going to Oxford, Sam got his undergraduate degree double majoring in math and physics, and a master's degree in math, both at McGill University. When he's not doing math, Sam enjoys playing piano and basketball and going for runs. Welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm good. Glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Have you ever gotten any mathematical insights while you're out on a run, by the way? Yeah, actually. I mean, sometimes. Like, especially if I've been thinking about the same thing for, like, just way too long Maybe not during the run, but afterwards. Usually, if you if you come back to the same problem, like you you have sort of a fresh mind, and uh, sometimes you get new ways of thinking of things. Nice. Yeah, I was watching uh, an episode of Money Heist last night, and there was a scene where one of the main characters, who's kind of like the mastermind behind this like big heist, he's like, "I need to think straight. I'm going to go punch a punching bag for a while," <laughs> and then he has these major <laughs> insights. So I was kind of curious to know if that ever ever happened in reality, and not just in film. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think like just changing what you're doing for for a bit often helps. Like it can even just be like going to go cook something or sure. taking a step back and, and coming back to it later is often very, very helpful. Yeah. In the same vein of kind of changing things around, do you ever read up on mathematical papers that are outside of your field just to kind of explore other domains and maybe have that influence your research? Is, is that kind of part of your mandate as a graduate student as well? It depends on on different grad students and different researchers. Some people really only read about their own field and they get sort of a very deep knowledge of what they're doing. I do prefer to have sort of broader knowledge, though, you know, some people would say that maybe I'm wasting time reading about things that are completely outside my field when I should just be like pushing deeper my own stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a, it's just a personal preference thing. I, I do prefer to yeah read outside my field, see what other people are doing. Got it. Yeah, I've just always been interested in the topic of kind of interdisciplinary collaboration. And since mathematics is such a fundamental science, I, I was just really kind of curious to get a sense of, first of all, you know, how much you look into other fields, but also whether your supervisor, for example, collaborates with other fields, maybe physics or chemistry and in terms of modeling, stuff like that. But I, 
I'm also aware that your research is quite theoretical, so it might really just be encapsulated in the world of math. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely encapsulated in the world of math. I'm, I'm still interested in physics, so sometimes I'll go read what's going on more on like the physics end of math. But even then, I would actually just say that it's still math. Like it's a part of math called mathematical physics that I'll oh, be reading wow. about. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that <laughs> actually has like a pretty different flavor than physics physics, where people I think are more practically oriented. There is a huge intersection, obviously, with like theoretical physics and mathematical mm-hmm. physics. But yeah, like I don't, I, I have like no contact right now with like the modeling people say or chemistry is completely i have no idea what's going on <laughs> that's for the later years yeah exactly now for the time being you're just gonna have to steep yourself in your domain and become as much of an expert as you possibly can and that domain is group theory so group theory. Yeah. let's let's start by defining what group theory is and you also kind of dropped a couple of other terms we have geometry and topology maybe we could start with those even because those seem a little more fundamental Yeah, so let's start maybe with geometry, because I think that would be the easiest to understand. And I think most people have some experience with geometry just from school. Um, So, yeah, geometry, I would say broadly, is the study of lengths, distances, areas, angles between things, and like the relationship between all these things. So, I mean, you get theorems in geometry, like the sum of the interior angles of a triangle is always 180 degrees. So this relates, you know, an object that's a triangle that is, you know, built out of straight lines and it relates it to the angles so these are all like geometrical quantities that you that you'd want to study yeah so that's that's you know euclidean geometry that most people are familiar with which is plane geometry so it all it all takes place in a flat plane you know the field of euclidean geometry is like pretty much just dead nobody's really doing anything in euclidean geometry anymore but yeah geometry is definitely still a very active field and and people study all sorts of different aspects of geometry, like to the point where it's, I'd say, even kind of difficult to define what <laughs> geometry is anymore. So the geometry that I might have learned in high school, in, in terms of this, what you're calling like a, like a flat plane geometry, just like flat shapes, that's, mm-hmm. that's not the kind of things that the top mathematicians in the world are currently talking about. I assume we understand triangles pretty well at this point. Yeah, yeah. So Euclidean geometry is just very, very well understood. I think like there are still things that could be done but at this point it's just such a well understood field it's you know arguably the oldest part of of mathematics so Mm -hmm. it really is very deeply and well understood so like one one generalization of euclidean geometry is geometry but like on other types of surfaces so you don't need to do geometry on a flat plane you could do geometry on a sphere for example okay then something like the angle the interior angles of a triangle adding up to 180 degrees that doesn't work anymore on a sphere. So first thing you need to do actually is define what a triangle on a sphere is. So what is a straight line on a sphere? The definition of that will just be like the shortest path between two points. That'll be a straight line on a sphere. Right. Okay. Following along the curvature of the surface. Yeah. Right. Because it's not going to be straight anymore. You can't really have a straight line on a sphere anymore. Right. But you can still make a reasonable definition of what is a straight line. So like if you're to travel from like Montreal to London, right? You're going to kind of take a curved path because you have to go around the earth, but mm-hmm. there's still, a, we still kind of agree what the straight line from Montreal to Europe is. It's just the shortest path from one yeah. point to the other. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So then, then you can say, okay, so a triangle on a sphere is just three straight quote unquote paths meeting at three points. And then you can calculate the angle between 
two edges of a triangle. And it just turns out that it's not true anymore, that they have to add up to 180 degrees. Is there a new constant sum that we have to meet? It's not constant anymore, but it's actually the, the sum is going to be greater than 180 degrees. It'll always be greater. Got it. That's definitely, that's definitely true. Yeah. I'm imagining if the triangle was small enough, we could kind of like approximate the surface of the Earth as flat. And so technically, if you had like, like a really, really small triangle just resting on the North Pole, you could look at it and it would look like it, its interior angles added up to 180. But if you blew up this triangle to be like thousands of kilometers across, these so-called straight lines that are connecting the corners of the triangle would have to really arc quite a long distance around the Earth, and presumably the interior angle would increase. Does that make sense? Yeah, ab absolutely. So if you take a very small triangle, it's going to look like a flat triangle. Mm -hmm. um, so you're going to get approximately 180 degrees. Though if you're like really strictly speaking, it'll be slightly larger than 180 right. degrees, but for all intents and purposes, it will just be 180 degrees. But you can consider the, the following triangle. So just go on the equator and pick three points. And then you can join those points just by f traveling along the equator. Those are the shortest paths between those points. So you have this triangle that is actually just circles circle. around the equator, <laughs> and the angle, and the angle at every at every vertex of the triangle is now just 100 is 180 degrees. So, you know, your total angle ends up being 540, I think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Wow. So okay. that that's an example of a very of a of where it just completely fails, right? Like, you don't get 180 degrees at all. Yeah, so the limit, the limit in cases for a triangle on a spherical surface is from just a triangle whose angles are just adding up to just above 180, but kind of like almost asymptotically yeah. getting there. And yeah, exactly. then all the way up to essentially the triangle is a circle. <laughs> the triangle is a circle here, yeah. Yeah, the triangle is a circle. It's actually kind of mind-numbing because the interior angle of a circle is 360 degrees sure yeah yeah but now we're saying there's 540 degrees in this triangular circle thing <laughs> how does yeah, that because, yeah so maybe actually even a, even a better example than the one i gave that might give a, a bit better intuition for what i'm trying to say is like you could make a, another triangle where you take a, a point on the north pole uh -huh. and then you take two points on the equator sure and then you join those up by shortest paths which we'll call straight lines on, on the sphere you know, if you, if you draw it out on, on a sphere, you'll convince yourself that the angles at each corner is actually a right angle. So you have three right angles in your triangle. Well, wait, that's only going to work if the uh, points are a quarter of the way around the globe along the equator. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah, I forgot to add that. Right. Yeah. So y yeah. you will get two right angles, though. You will always no get two. No matter what, yeah. which is yes. crazy, because we know in a plane, two right angles adds up to 180, and that's your full triangle. So there's no room for the third. Yeah, exactly. Oh boy, we could probably have a whole a whole podcast just on triangles. So lovely. But <laughs> yeah. we're gonna try and rig it back now. Okay, so I think I have a bit of a better idea of the different kind of flavors of geometry now. You said there's plane geometry, and we could also do, do geometry on a sphere. Yep. Are there any other surfaces maybe that are of note before we maybe move on to talk about topology? Sure. So the plane is kind of the zero curvature case. The sphere is what's called positive curvature geometry. And then you have the negative curvature geometry, which is also called hyperbolic geometry, which takes place on sort of a saddle-shaped surface. So you, you imagine like a saddle of, on a horse or like a, a Pringle chip, right? Like that, <laughs> I like that's Pringle, also the, yeah. Yeah, the, that's the right type of shape. Called, that's a negatively curved space. And you can do geometry there, and then you can, you know, you do the same exact thing where you define a straight line to just be the shortest path between two points. And uh, you kind of get the reverse situation where the interior angles of a triangle are going to add up to less than 180 degrees. Mm. And you can make these like 
what are known as thin triangles, where basically the, the, ang the angle at every vertex is exactly zero, or almost zero, asymptotically close to mm -hmm. zero. So the, yeah, the, the interior angles can sum up to, you know, arbitrarily small numbers, but never more than 180 degrees. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's just the reverse of the spherical case. Yeah, exactly. Hence positive versus negative curvature. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Exactly. Interesting. It is also kind of cool how a sphere is like a closed surface. Yes. But a yeah. saddle, like I'm picturing a saddle on a horse. I mean, there's like an edge to a saddle. I can I, I can point to the edge of yeah, a saddle, so, but I can't point to the edge of a sphere. That's kind yeah, of mind-bending. Yeah, so I say like, I say a, a saddle, but really, really it kind of goes off to infinity. Like imagine sort of a saddle that just extends forever. <laughs> Hold on, give me yeah. one second. Let me just imagine an infinite saddle. Okay, got it. All right. <laughs> I just finished rendering an infinite saddle in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I need a nap now. Cool. Yeah. Okay, great. So we have different curvatures of surfaces. Flat is zero, sphere is positive, saddle going off to infinity is negative. And we saw with this triangle example that we have different properties now in these different spaces. Yeah. Okay. That's geometry. Euclidean was the flat case, and then we have non-Euclidean? Both, are, you could say, are non-Euclidean. They're both not on a flat plane. Got it. Perfect. Okay, next up, topology. What is that? Right, topology. So topology is, it's still very visual, and you're still, you still care about the shapes of things. But you don't really care anymore about distances and angles. So in, in geometry, like I think the best way to explain this is like by comparing it to what geometry is. In geometry, if I say something like, okay, take a sphere then really you're imagining this like perfectly round object that's symmetrical and you know what exactly you'd imagine a sphere to be. Uh -huh. Whereas in topology, when I say a sphere, I can mean anything that I could deform to be a sphere. So I can just stretch the sphere out and manipulate it in all sorts of ways, as long as I don't tear it or I don't cut it. But I can I can just bend bend it. And no matter how I bend it, it's still just a sphere. To a topologist, that's just a sphere. Oh, so a sphere is kind of more like the general version of anything that could be turned into a sphere, barring, you know, this, this cutting. Yeah, so, so that's why it's called rubber sheet geometry, because it's, you imagine that all your objects are like kind of made out of rubber that you could just stretch infinitely. And the, the rule is always you're not allowed to tear things. Uh -huh. uh, but <laughs> yeah, other, otherwise you can, you can deform it in any way. As if mathematicians are children. Don't tear anything now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sit down with your rubber sheet and relax. Yeah. So there's actually this famous example, or I guess it's kind of a joke, that a topologist can't tell the difference between a coffee cup and a donut because <laughs> they kind of have one hole and you could imagine how you could deform your coffee cup, say, to, to turn it into a donut if you could just, you know, infinitely deform your, your coffee cup. Did you understand what I mean? Hold on. A, okay. So if I think about putting my fist like into the place where the coffee goes, that's not really yeah. a hole because I haven't gone through the object. Exactly. You haven't gone through it. You just sort of deformed it. Uh -huh. You like created like a cavity sort of, but you didn't, you didn't tear anything. You didn't. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's just one hole where the handle is and that could exactly. be the hole in the middle of the donut. Wow. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's, that's, I think a little more mentally challenging than creating an infinite saddle in my brain, but. Uh, yeah, it is, it is a bit challenging. You have to kind of stare at it and, and think about how you would go about it. Or, or, you know, what you can do is you can just 
pull out Play-Doh, right, and make a, what you would call a donut mm-hmm. out of Play-Doh. Like, literally just do this in the real world. Yeah. And then just start deforming things until you get something that looks like a coffee cup. And convince yourself that, yeah, you can actually make a coffee cup into a into a donut and and vice versa without tearing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I guess. All right. <laughs> yeah. I think I have my afternoon cut out for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. So topology, we call it rubber sheet geometry. So it is kind of like a type of geometry in a sense. Yeah, it is kind of like geometry. Um, they, they intersect a lot and they, there's a lot of interplay between the two. And like topological properties will have an effect on the geometrical properties of a space and, and vice versa. So there really is a big overlap. But I, I think for me, at least, the difference is really that in geometry, things are a lot more rigid. You, you really care about the angles and, and lengths between things. So if I go about like deforming things, I completely change the angles and the lengths in my space. Mm-hmm. If I just start stretching things, you know, that, that's not part of geometry. You're not allowed to do that in geometry. But in topology, you can. You just don't care anymore about lengths and angles. You care more about holes and, and things like that, like holes in your space. For example, in, in, your, in your donut, you care that there's a hole there. I can't just tear it and or close the hole somehow. I can only make these deformations, and that will preserve the fact that there's a hole there. All this talk about holes is making me think of what happens when we tie our shoelaces. Like if I take a lace, for all intents and purposes, a lace can be thought of as just kind of like a line, which, which has one dimension. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then if I tie my laces, though, at some point, something's going to be passing through some hole in order to yes. kind of secure a knot. So yeah. how, do I, how do I create a hole? I'm not tearing my shoelace. How am I creating a hole by taking like a one-dimensional object and then wrapping it around itself? Mm-hmm. I, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. This so, could be totally outside of your field tonight. We can just move on. No, no, this is this is kind of in my field. So I think what you're getting at is actually a whole field of math called knot theory, uh, which which studies knots and the type of knots that you can make uh, using, yeah, a piece of string, essentially. Excellent. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You haven't really created a hole in your string. Your string is still just a string. And Mm. the the topology of the string, so all the the topological properties of the string are, are the same after you created the knot. What you have changed is the exterior of the knot. So everything that's around the knot or like the space around the knot, that space now has a hole in it by virtue of you creating that knot in the string. So Mm -hmm. what mathematicians will do to study knots is not study the knots themselves because the knots themselves are just lines. They they don't have that many interesting properties. But what they'll do is they'll study what's called the knot complement, which is the space outside the knot. Hmm, okay. And they'll study the ways that you've created holes outside outside of your knot. And by studying that, you learn a lot about the knot itself. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next time I tie my shoelace, I'm going to keep in mind the that there's some kind of shoelace complement that I'm creating as well. <laughs> yeah. You might recognize this voice from the guy who's doing the interview on this episode the previous episodes and all the episodes coming down the pipeline in the future hey folks it's jeremy here just wanted you to know that i happen to be a math tutor and so if you or anybody you know needs help i'd be happy to help out myself or connect you with somebody who i know in my network of people who i know who are also good at math you know where to reach me, Instagram, abstractcast, Twitter, abstract underscore cast, Facebook, abstract, period, and abstractcast at gmail.com. So, hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Bye. Funky. Yeah. Oh, God. Amazing. Cool, cool.
Alrighty, so geometry, topology, I think I'm ready to talk about group theory. I have yeah. taken one course on group theory, but mm -hmm. I really wanted to get a much more solid idea of how geometry figures into all this before we move forward. So it's group theory time. Yeah, Let's get a okay. quick primer on that, and then we're going to st start diving into your research specifically. Cool. Yeah, so um, group theory is by far, I would say, the, the more abstract thing that we're going to cover today. Like, it, it's, it's a lot more abstract than geometry and topology, where you can give these visual examples. Really broadly, group theory is the study of symmetry, and it can really be symmetry of almost anything you can imagine. So a group is is a mathematical object that you can study, and that mathematical object encodes the symmetries of some other object. So for example, a group that you will have seen in your course is the groups of symmetries of a square. Now, what do I mean by a square here? Literally just, you know, a square. And what do I mean by symmetry of a square? It's all the transformations of the square that you could do that would preserve its shape. So for example, if you take your square and then rotate it by 90 degrees, after doing the rotation, you get the same picture of the square. You haven't really changed it. You've just moved it, but it's the same square. And if you, if for example, I asked you to close your eyes and I rotated the square and you opened your eyes again, you wouldn't be able to tell that I actually did anything to the square. So that's, that's sure. one way of defining symmetry. Things Got that it. I can do to the square such that if you had your eyes closed, you wouldn't be able to tell that I did it once you opened your eyes. Mm-hmm. I like how you say things I can do to the square. You can close your eyes. I can treat the square to a steak dinner. You can open your eyes up. You can have no idea that that's where you just had a delicious dinner with me. Yeah, exactly. Um, what are the what are the symmetries? What are the symmetries of the square? There are three rotation symmetries where I rotate it not by ninety degrees, one hundred and eighty degrees, or uh, two seventy degrees. Mm -hmm. So those are three rotations. Then in every group, there's this symmetry, special symmetry called the identity symmetry, which is where you don't do anything to the square. So if, if you closed your eyes and I just left the square there, I didn't touch it, and you opened your eyes again, you wouldn't know that I didn't do anything. I might have rotated. So there's this oh, okay. do nothing symmetry like that, that is yeah. also a symmetry of the square. And it's a symmetry of any object, if you think about it. You give, I give you any object and I don't do anything to it. It, it is a symmetry. It preserved its structure. I think I'm going to get my PhD in the doing nothing symmetries. I'm <laughs> I'm going to master all of the objects that I could do nothing to, and then you won't know that I did nothing, and then I'm going to get a diploma. Sound good? I'm very excited to read that thesis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually not even going to write it, and you won't even know that I won't have written it. <laughs> good point, yeah. <laughs> um, so the square has a symmetry in that you can kind of rotate it mm -hmm. in particular ways, in which case if my eyes were closed and I opened them, I wouldn't know you did anything. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, and also what's not a symmetry, I can't rotate it by 45 degrees because... I'll go from a square to a diamond if I do that. And you'll mm. open your eyes and you'll be like, oh, yeah, you, you moved it. Um, yeah. And is that steak sauce? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so th those, are the, those are the rotation symmetries and this identity symmetry. And then there are four more symmetries. Well, there are four axes along which you can reflect the square. So there are these vertical and horizontal axes. And then the two diagonal axes of the square. And if I just take the square, pick it up, flip it around along any of these axes, and then you open your eyes, you won't be able to tell that I actually flipped the square. So those are also those are also symmetries. Got it. And it's actually the full symmetry group of the square. So all of these symmetries together form the symmetry group of the square. Is there a special name for it? Yeah, so it's called the dihedral group of order eight. Because oh, okay. Yeah, dihedral. So 
dihedral groups are symmetry groups of polygons. So you can do this, right? I, we did it for a square, but you could do it for a triangle, you could do it for a pentagon, you could do it for any n-gon, and order eight because there are eight symmetries. That's that's all it is. Wait, hold on a second. Is there a polygon that gives every order? Is there, for example, a polygon where I can get order 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15? Okay, so you can get even order starting at 6. So you can get the order 6, 8, 10, etc. And the reason that you can't get an odd order is that for any n-gon, so an n-gon is a polygon with n sides. Okay. There are going to be n minus 1 rotations that you can do to it. And then there's always the identity symmetry. So far, we have n symmetries. Uh -huh. The n minus 1 rotations and the identity. Okay. And then you have n reflections. You can always find n axes along which to reflect your shape. So you have n reflections, n minus 1 rotations, and the identity, which together makes 2n. So the dihedral group always has an order 2n, which is even. 2 times so, anything is even. Got it. Oh, yeah. fun. It's always even. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So... This is, of course, just one example of a group. Presumably, yeah. group theory is a much more broad field. You said it was very abstract. So far, it seems okay. It's yeah. This was so that was a fairly concrete example. So you, uh -huh. you take a, a concrete shape, and you look at its symmetries, and then you form this group of its symmetries. And it's mm -hmm. yeah. So, so like you said, so far, so far it's concrete. I should say there, there's one there's one more thing that I should add to to this example. So groups are algebraic objects. And so far, there's not really much algebra here. I, it kind of almost feels like geometry or something. Uh, yeah. Again, algebra, again, broadly speaking, I would say it's you're studying objects where you can either multiply things together or like combine things in some algebraic way. So how do, how do you combine things in your group? So there, there's always this operation called group multiplication. It gives you a way of combining two symmetries together. So what does that mean in our dihedral group example? So let's let's go back to the square just for two seconds. Sure. You can combine two symmetries just by doing one after the other, and then you always get another symmetry. So for example, you can cut out a square, do a rotation by 90 degrees, and then do a reflection along whatever axis you want, and then just try to figure out what axis you end up reflecting on over at the end of, of this process. Got so it. That's, that's giving you a way of always, you can always combine two symmetries to make a third symmetry. That's group multiplication, where you, the multiplication isn't usual multiplication of numbers. It's kind of multiplication of symmetries. And what, what you're doing is you, do, you just do one symmetry, do the other symmetry, and then you see what the resulting symmetry is. So it's kind of like there are different algorithms you can follow, but each of those is going to arrive at the same position. So there's like a, there's sort of a redundancy. Like you were talking about how there's there's three rotational symmetries plus the identity. Well, for a square, if I just rotate the square four times, that would be the same as just not rotating it at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so I can rotate it four times, eight times, 12 times, 16 times. All of these would be just equivalent to not moving it at all. Exactly. So that's why we don't say there are infinitely many symmetries. Because, yeah, if, if, mm -hmm. if we add all of those to your group, then, yeah, there are infinitely many symmetries of the square. But... Right you're not adding any useful information to your group by doing that because like you said rotating it four times is equivalent to just leaving it alone yeah yeah i could walk like all the way around the the earth and end, end up where i started and if someone didn't know that i'd walked all the way on the earth they would think i hadn't moved yeah 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 but boy would they be wrong boy would they be wrong yeah sorry okay so yeah keep going 
something that's just easier to just explain um, on a podcast would just be combine a rotation by 90 degrees with a rotation by 180 degrees. And it's pretty easy to see that this is just going to be a rotation by 270 degrees. So this is another way of combining the two symmetries to get a third symmetry of your group. That's actually really interesting how we're talking about now like uh, group multiplication, mm-hmm. but we can actually just add the angles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just to be clear, we're talking about group theory. This was the focus of your master's, right? You know, you said that you just are your PhD. So we're, we're mainly focusing on the master's research here. So even though, yeah, I'm, I was technically doing research in group theory for my master's, it ended up being a lot more topological, I think. So whereas my current research, even though it's still in geometric group theory, I think it's more related to, to groups. Cool. It is, it is, but it is kind of a mess. And all these things interact with each other in these really amazing ways, which is why I think geometric group theory is just a fantastic field to be in, because you, you see interaction between geometry, topology and group theory in like this, I think, just amazing way. Right, so like when you have a uh, group theory seminar, everybody in there is a group theorist, but they're doing a whole bunch of different kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so group theory is, is a very old field. Okay. Um, or I, I say very old. I think it was, it got started in the 18th century. Um, okay. I, I'm really bad with like my math history. Um, <laughs> You're good with numbers it, as long as they don't refer to dates. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so group theory group theory is very old, and it's taken all sorts of different directions. People study groups in all kinds of different ways. And, and really, it's this geometric group theory that's new. It's a new way of studying groups. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a vast field in its own right, group theory. So let's, let's kind of dive into what your master's research was then, just presumably because you've just started your PhD, there's not a whole lot to unpack there just yet. But let's kind of really zero in. Now that we have all of this lovely background knowledge, with the geometry and the topology and the group theory. Let's hear about precisely what you were doing in your master's. Okay, so my master's thesis was titled Vanishing of the Second L2 Betty Number for PQR Complexes. Wow. Yeah. That was your master's research? Oh my goodness. Uh, Let's, you know, let's unpack what that means a little bit. Part of my, part of the title was Vanishing of the Second L2 Betty Number. So a Betty number is something that measures how a space has holes. Again, very, very broadly here. What are the holes in this space? And it kind of tells you about the dimension of, of a hole in a space. So, for example, if you take a sheet of paper and you poke a hole through the sheet of paper, a topologist will say that that's a one-dimensional hole. And the reason for that is because you can sort of trace a circle around the hole to enclose the hole on your sheet of paper. And a circle is a one-dimensional object. Even though it kind of lives in 2D, the circle itself is, is 1D. It's a piece of string. You, you could see it like that. Okay. So it's the hole in your sheet of paper is one-dimensional, even though you would think maybe it's two-dimensional because it's in a sheet of paper, which is 2D. So the dimension of the hole is based on the dimension of the shape you can draw around it to enclose it. Exactly. Okay. So, and then, you know, in higher dimensions, so let's go to 3D now. And let's say I poke a hole out of 3D space now. I can't enclose that hole with, with, a, with a piece of string anymore. You would need a sphere to enclose the hole that you poked out of three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. So a sphere, again, you would think maybe it's a 3D object, but no, it's actually a two-dimensional object because you're only looking at the surface of the sphere, which itself is two-dimensional. Okay. So that's a, that's a two-dimensional hole. 
And what the Betty numbers measure is sort of how many holes you have of what dimension. So the second L2 Betty number tells you how many two-dimensional holes you have. <laughs> yeah, so so, so you, were, you were studying how many two-dimensional holes there were in a space? So not exactly, because I was studying something called the L2 Betty numbers, which are a generalization of just normal Betty numbers. And it doesn't have, it doesn't so much have to do with holes anymore, but at least in the context of my thesis, it had to do with how a, a certain space called a PQR complex, which was also in, in, the, in the title of uh, my thesis, how negatively curved it is, in a sense, actually. That's, that was kind of the relation between the the vanishing of the second L2 Betty number and this PQR complex. If the PQR complex was very negatively curved, so you can imagine like a, a saddle, right, which is negatively curved, like a very sort of aggressive saddle somehow, would be very <laughs> negatively curved. What an aggressive <laughs> saddle, that's what your thesis, what do your parents think about that? So what are you studying? Aggressive saddles that go to infinity with holes in them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, I love it. It's so good. So if, if the space was negatively curved enough, you have non-vanishing L2 Betty numbers. So that means that they're non-zero. So what does it mean for a Betty number to vanish? Okay, so for a, a normal Betty number to vanish, it just means that there are no holes of a certain dimen dimension. So if I say the nth L2 Betty number vanishes, it means there are no holes in your space of dimension n. Sure, uh, okay. So that's what it means for the Betty number to vanish. The L2 Betty number is something a bit different. It, in my thesis, it was related to the curvature of, of the space. So a very negatively curved space can support non-vanishing Betty numbers. I was trying to show that a certain class of spaces, topological spaces, had vanishing L2 Betty numbers. So that tells you something about the curvature of the space and also tells you something about some groups that are associated to, to the space. It, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, <laughs> it would take like a whole maybe like hour long grad seminar to sort of properly go over all the concepts that are involved in yeah, yeah, absolutely numbers and PQR complexes and all that. But essentially, it's a it's a type of homology theory. A homology is this way of looking at holes in a space, and it's a it's a generalization of that type of theory. I'll just leave it at that. Cool. Yeah, this is exactly how I thought the episode was going to kind of climax. It was just going to get very, very intense. And then I was going to stare wide-eyed at you for a few seconds. And then we maybe just have a quick chuckle about it. So <laughs> this, is, this is actually perfection. Expectation is reality in this case. Awesome. And I'm what this makes me really excited about is having you back on the show towards the end of your PhD when we could talk about your new research and we can even kind of refer back to this episode and bring in all those concepts together. So this is really, I've got this longitudinal idea of having you back in mind already. So Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to be back. This was a lot of fun. Never, I've never done anything like this. So this was really a, really a nice opportunity. Sweet. Yeah, I, I absolutely love this. Math is very near and dear to me. And uh, it, it's just been a blast talking about something extremely abstract without any visual aid. So I think we've accomplished something great today. <laughs> and thank you for being part of that. <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot. So, well, hold on a second. We're not done just yet. I got one final question for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's kind of a thought experiment of sorts. I want you to imagine yourself standing at the foot of an auditorium. Massive auditorium. Thousand seater packed to the brim. All eyes on you. What do you tell the audience? Well, I don't think I would talk to them about math, to be fully honest. Um, 
Uh, what would I say though? You have these good questions. I uh, <laughs> uh, I just think. No rush. Okay, what I would say to people, what I would have liked to hear if I was in the audience, I think, is that, like, in say in high school, I didn't really display much mathematical talent until pretty late. I wasn't getting good grades in math. I didn't like it. And I, it just confused me a lot. I, I ended up, you know, getting interested in it and getting, you know, quite obsessed. And, you know, now I'm doing my PhD and it's a huge part of my life. So I think that even if you're you shouldn't just base your abilities on these random early life traits and think I was never good at something. Uh, I should not go into it. If you're just interested in it, just think a lot about it and, and do it. Things like grades and things like that, I just don't think they matter. Yeah, just do what you're interested in. Cool. <laughs> kind of vague, but there you go. Um, Makes sense. You wouldn't be the first person to tell us. And it's uh, it's good advice. Great advice. If you're interested, everything else will follow. You know, passion is passion is is a very powerful motivator. Yeah, and also like you know, I don't like hearing things like from people say like LeBron James, who tell people, "Oh, anything's possible if you want to make the NBA. That's possible." Like it is possible, but like you know, some people are born with like these insane natural gifts, and I, I do think that it's hard to achieve some things. But I wouldn't focus so much on like the achievement aspect of it. I think things that you're interested in. If you really are interested in something, then just doing it will bring you a lot of joy and pleasure in itself. And I don't think you should focus so much on the accomplishments because if you start doing that, then you just start comparing yourself to other people. And there's an endless list of people that are going to be more accomplished and do things better than you. Um, you should just focus on the things you like doing and try to get as much out of that as possible uh, for yourself. That's a great addition. Yeah, thank you for that, Sam. I've been thinking a lot about this fact exactly. There's like a, I guess you could call it a well-documented phenomenon, which is that people very quickly become uh, acclimated to their accomplishments and their accolades and their status. And people generally aren't happy with where they're at, no matter what. Because if they're constantly looking for something else, when they get that, there will be something beyond to attain. And Absolutely. it's just kind of this infinite regression towards some unknown, hopefully ultimate end that I don't think most people ever even get to. So realizing early on that, like you're saying, it's not what you're getting in the future. It's, you know, what, what you're getting out of it right now. Yeah. Whatever yeah, you're doing. Cool, Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Lovely way to end the, the episode. So Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure having you. Really excited to have the world listen to what this was and have you back on the show. Thank in a few you. Years I'm, time. I'm looking forward to listening to it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be awesome. All right, Sam, have an awesome afternoon. Take care. Be well. Ooh, yeah, likewise. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.